Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin, talking about a potential tax cap in this city. We're also discussing the latest fake homecoming at Mac, the Grey Cup halftime show, masking fewer flyers and ramping up nuclear energy. The GMH podcast begins now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. There is also a hot topic at Hamilton City Hall. The costs associated with inflation in terms of, of, of expenditures, whether those are collective agreements, whether it's contracts, uh, whether it's energy, but there's no revenue. We, we haven't a revenue tool that, that adjusts with inflation. That is the general manager of finance with the city of Hamilton, Mike Zagarek. We talked to him last week about the budget pressures and the potential tax hike we're seeing. If you have not been paying attention, well, this might startle you because Hamilton taxpayers are right now staring at a potential double-digit increase for 2024. And with that comes the idea of capping any future hikes, so putting a ceiling on how high that tax rate could go. person behind that idea is joining us now on GMH, the councillor for Ward 15, Ted McMeekin. Ted, good morning. How are you today? Yes, good morning. I'm fine. Do you want to explain your tax cap idea? How would this work? Well, um, our beleaguered uh, taxpayers are facing high mortgage rates, uh, escalating uh, food prices, uh, food bank use is up 40%, all kinds of pressures, interest rates, uh, you name it. Uh, it is uh, inconceivable to me that uh, anyone in the city would welcome or support a 14.2% tax increase. Uh, the way um, budgets have historically been uh, presented, the staff go off and they come in with a presentation, which they make to council and then council, I guess, looks at it and it trims it back. I wanted to be proactive given the speculation about uh, an enormous and uh, in my, in my uh, um, uh, humble opinion, uh, irresponsible uh, musings about a tax increase uh, by putting a cap on it at 4%, which is the inflation rate, um, and using all of the tools we have from using uh, um, uh, resource uh, funds, uh, um, uh, you know, staff freeze, uh, looking at uh, a deep dive on core services, uh, uh, reserve funds, all that sort of stuff. Uh, so it's about uh, it's about a pers perspective. Uh, traditionally, uh, uh, we have the uh, the staff writing the reading on the wall. Um, I think the council should be uh, should be reading the writing on the wall. And the writing I'm reading on the wall is people just won't tolerate a 14 percent tax increase. So the way I'm looking at this potential increase for 2024, which again stands at about 14%, is that 5% right. of that 14% uh, comes from downloading, whether it's the provincial or federal government, which would leave about 9% from other city services that we rely on. So capping it at 4%, if that is the number that is ultimately agreed upon, what happens to the rent, the rest of that percentile? Is it is it deferred down the line? Do we not get those services? How does that work? Well, that's that's part of the dilemma we're in, uh, Rick. Um, the simple, it's not 5%, it's 3.69%. Uh, so 4% plus 3.69 would bring us in at uh, over 7, uh, which is uh, is not uh, not helpful. Uh, the Premier of the province, uh, uh, Doug Ford, has promised to make... Uh, 
the city whole in terms of uh, the financial implications of Bill 23. Um, the city's not seen much evidence of that to date, uh, but uh, I'm prepared to take him at his word. And if uh, we come in at four and uh, he doesn't keep us whole, then he can explain to the people of Hamilton why their tax increase is closer to 8% than it is the 4% that uh, council uh, uh, should, in my opinion, put in place. Are you uh, confident that the province is going to, as you said, make us whole, you know, uh, agree to give us the money that we are owed? Well, the province is full of surprises. I mean, uh, you know, we went from... Uh, going to take big chunks out of the green belt to uh, I'm not going to touch it to uh, it's a sham to uh, very, very, very sorry. I made a mistake. Uh, I'm going to put it all back in the green belt. So it's pretty hard to predict exactly what uh, what will happen from the province. Uh, but, uh, you know, I give the premier credit for uh, having the courage to back away. Uh, you can argue whether that was political or real, but, uh, but I, I give him credit. You know, it takes a, uh, it takes some uh, courage to stand and say, look, I made a promise. I broke it. I'm sorry. Um, here's what I'm going to do. Um, I'm optimistic that, uh, yes, he made a promise about uh, uh, fiscal uh, integrity, and uh, I'm trusting that he'll keep it. And if he doesn't keep it, uh, I think the city will probably end up running a half-page ad explaining why. <laughs> Well, we just down the highway, Toronto ha- is, is staring at a $1.5 billion hole, and the Premier yeah. seems to be very receptive to give Toronto some money, so why not Hamilton? Well, good question. That's uh, particularly when we have a 14% industrial commercial to 86% uh, residential tax ratio, which means two properties with an equal market value, Toronto and Hamilton, the Toronto residential taxpayer pays 34% less in taxes. So we're not as fiscally uh, uh, stable as Toronto, um, and we're also uh, uh, a big city with a, uh, a considerable vulnerable community. Uh, you know, uh, we have the cold red situation here with a lot of our people simply uh, struggling to put food on the table, let alone uh, pay their taxes. We are in discussion with Ted McMeekin, Councillor Ward 15 with the City of Hamilton on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. We're talking about Mr. McMeekin's idea for a tax cap when it comes to property taxes. Some believe, however, Ted, that doing so would do more harm than good. Uh, what do you say to that? Well, I've heard that story before. There, there's, uh, uh, there's been a, a claim that uh, previous councils uh, were so... Uh, undertaxed the undertaxed citizens that we some catching up to do well you know if you take the the four tax increases of the previous council uh together cumulatively it's it's more than the uh the the lower figure of 10.5 percent which excludes the provincial downloading uh in this one year and uh, the five members uh, that uh, uh returned to council from the previous council all voted to support those uh those particular uh, tax increases, which range from uh, uh, 2.1 percent to uh, 2.8 percent, 2.5 and 2, uh, so so I I don't uh, I don't hold that to be the truth. I think there there's 1.3 billion dollars in uh, reserve funds. If we were to take 90 million of that on a one-time uh, um, uh, situation, we could do the things that. Uh, Council, the new council wants to do around new priority areas, 
while keeping the tax uh, hit on uh, citizens at four percent. Last one for me. We don't have much time, but I want to talk to you. And we heard it off the top with Mike Zagara, creating revenue. Is the city in a position to create some revenue to offset future tax hikes? Well, that needs to be explored. I know that the in Toronto, one of their major revenue sources is the land transfer tax when properties are bought and sold. Um, that would generate uh, hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, which would be very very helpful. I think there's some deeper things that need to be looked at too. Some have suggested uh, uh, FCM, AMO and others that uh, municipalities need to be given a new revenue tool uh, or alternatively have the HST raised a point or two with all of the money that would be raised uh, uh, from such an increase uh, dedicated to uh, maintaining, uh, building uh, municipal infrastructure. So those are things we need to look at and uh, we, we shouldn't be running a number of services, uh, particularly optional services, just at a break-even basis. We should be looking at uh, using those areas, few areas where we have some uh, flexibility to generate revenue. And I believe Mike Zagarek and his team will be looking at that. He's indicated he will, and uh, I'll certainly be as helpful as I can uh, uh, from um, uh, my background uh, experience uh, with that. Well, we know one thing. You and your council colleagues have some heavy lifting in the weeks to come. Uh, we wish you uh, good luck in uh, comprising the 2024 uh, tax budget. Thanks for the time, Ted. You're welcome. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. Ted McMeekin, Councilor Ward 15, City of Hamilton. Yes, there is a lot of hard work left to do. A lot of long meetings ahead for City Council as they try to whittle down this 14% proposed at this point, 14% tax increase. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Uh, there was some kind of beat going on in West Hamilton over the weekend and not, not a good one, certainly not for property owners in and around the neighborhood. It's more than 8,000 partygoers were out in that area of the city for a fake homecoming event around McMaster University. Five people were arrested. It just wasn't a good scene. Was it better than past years? Is there anything we can do going forward when it comes to dispersing or preventing these massive parties from being held? Maureen Wilson is the councillor in Ward 1 with the City of Hamilton and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Councillor Wilson, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. Thanks for having me on. Paint a picture for us this weekend. What did you see? Uh, so if, you, if your listeners can picture the McMaster's uh, Children's Hospital on Main Street West, just think about the neighborhood right across the street and think about primarily one street and then picture 8,000 students in and around that area and then picture uh, whole streets cordoned off with police caution tape Think about three um, uh, Hamilton Police Service horses. Think about streets blocked off with huge City of Hamilton uh, snow plowing or dump trucks and police. Uh, think about drones. Think about police officers from, I think, three service areas, Hamilton, Niagara, and London. And then think about uh, neighbors who have live who are living in those uh, in that area not able to leave their house think about having to tow cars uh, the night before on those streets uh, because last year or 2021 a car got 
completely uh, totaled and rolled over, as you know, by students during that event. So picture that. It's not a very good picture, to be honest. Well, it's not a very good picture. It's an exhausting picture for the residents and for some of the students who also, of course, live in that area. And then picture as a taxpayer you having to fund anywhere between 175000 to 250000 a year to babysit that. Just for a party mm-hmm. that you're not even invited to at the end of the day, and it's in your backyard. That's right. You're not invited to it, but you have to host it, apparently. Yeah. Neighbors must be livid. I think, um, I obviously, I, I can't speak to them. I was there for much of the duration, and uh, the, the next day they're, they're exhausted. Um, they're, yes, some are angry, some are just resistant resigned to it they they um they know that they they can't leave their house for about two weekends in a row because what mcmaster does is it doesn't actually call it a home it doesn't call a homecoming weekend so um the uh the police services and all of the city staff rely on intelligence on the ground and a social media account so as a consequence the hamilton police service has to um, pay time and a half for special duty officers for two weekends in a row because McMaster won't actually name a homecoming weekend. So for those two weekends in a row, um, the neighbors are basically landlocked or housebound. Maureen, are you suggesting that if Mac did host a sanctioned event, which they haven't done since 2019, mm-hmm. that these parties would be, well, there would probably still be parties, but we wouldn't see 8,000 people, I would assume. Well, I do know that these events across university cities um, are growing. So it's not a unique McMaster phenomenon, unfortunately. Um, Queens in Kingston, Western in London, Waterloo and Laurier in Kitchener, Waterloo uh, Waterloo and Guelph are all um, suffering, if you will, uh, from these same unsanctioned events. Um, I, I do know that there is conversation in the community about ways and means in which to um, address it. And one of those being, let's just call it the event. Let's be an adult. (laughs) There's no deniability afforded to Mac when we don't call it. So call the event. That way the police know, the neighbors know the certainty of of when it's going to be. And then we can, uh, you know, plan more efficiently. Um, I I do think it's my own personal opinion that Mac has to start um, hosting things on campus. Um, I know other universities uh, do that. This would come at a cost to McMaster, obviously, increased security, whatever the case is. In saying that, is there any of this cost that will be passed on to the university or or ask them to pay part of it? Um, Last year, the mayor and the city manager were asked to meet with McMaster to formally engage in that discussion. And, and regrettably, um, that discussion has taken place with the president, and McMaster has um, denied the city of Hamilton's request for it to contribute to, the, to try and offset this financial cost. McMaster argues uh, that they do contribute through uh, the service of special constables throughout the year, I think Thursday to Saturday night, and at the event itself, which they do. Um, but this event would not take place in the absence of McMaster, and I think there's also a contributing issue to the fact that um, there's not enough housing provided on, on campus. So um, I, 
you know, Hamilton has no shortage of, of need, that's for sure. And it's a little bit of salt in the wound for the taxpayers in Hamilton to have to contribute um, to about $250,000 a year for St. Patrick's Day and uh, fake homecoming. Uh, that's just a that's just money that could go, frankly, um, to a whole bunch of other good things, not this thing. Absolutely. Maureen Wilson is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Ms. Wilson is the counselor for Ward 1 with the City of Hamilton. We're talking about the latest fake homecoming event uh, near McMaster University. We say fake because this was an unsanctioned event. Mac is not holding these homecoming events. This is off campus where 8,000 party goers were uh, whooping it up over the weekend. A uh, little bit of damage, calls for service from police. There were some tickets handed out, five people. People were arrested. Um, I, I'm, I'm sure that um, in in past years it was much worse. Can we say this year's was much better in terms of the disturbance level, the the level of damage or, or lack thereof? Well, eight thousand students in one area, Rick. <laughs> that's that's not a, a good report card. Um, and I'll I'll have to get um, and I will be getting a fuller briefing from Hamilton staff comparing the years and, and, and tracking the difference. It's, it's, it's not a good news story uh, for the long-serving residents of, of that area, who, by the way, um, welcome the students. They know the students bring a great deal of vibrancy. They're good for the local economy, as is McMaster. But this is about um, being a neighbor and being respectful of your neighbors. And it's just a a framework of, of behavior and values that I, I just can't get my head around, that um, I don't know how you're upholding the reputation of your school by trashing your neighborhood. Is it feasible to just hand out a bunch of tickets that weekend? Well, they do hand out a bunch of tickets, and I'm not obviously um, an expert in um, these sorts of events. The The police are are the professionals, and there's a real art and science to, to public order because um, you can see sometimes that <clears throat> it's like a match when you have that many students in such close proximity to one another and there's substance involved, right? It's no secret. There's booze and other things. So <clears throat> you have to be really careful in the management uh, of, of it and, and that's why Hamilton Police excel at that. Um, <clears throat> we are going to be investigating uh, the possibility, and, and council approved of this last uh, week, as a matter of fact, um, <clears throat> trying to secure an injunction um, to, um, uh, following on the steps of the town of uh, Wasaga Beach that has an unsanctioned event every year in the form of a car rally. And also we're going to be uh, looking at the feasibility of pursuing legal action against the organizer, which is a, a social media platform called Canada Party Life, believe it or not. Sounds like a fun time for some, at least, not for all. Maureen, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you for your time this morning. I appreciate it. Thank you. Maureen Wilson is the counselor for Ward 1, City of Hamilton, as we discuss more fake homecoming events in and around McMaster University. Eight to 9,000 people. Yeah, there were some arrests. A couple of people reportedly taken to hospital because they were so drunk, they just could not do anything else but be intoxicated. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Green Day is going to play the Grey Cup halftime show November 19th at Tim Hortons Field. What an announcement it was Saturday night. 
Sure, a lot of people, in fact, I've seen a lot of people very excited about this halftime bash. Actually ran a poll on my personal X account, at Rick Samprin. How do you feel about Green Day, Green Day being named the Grey Cup halftime show in Hamilton, November 19th? 76% extremely happy about it, saying yay. 8% actually said boo, come on. And 16% said meh. 76% still overwhelmingly positive about this announcement. Um, that is just one snippet of some of the fun that we are going to be having during Grey Cup Week. Of course, the game is the centerpiece to that phenomenal festival that is planned here in Hamilton. More announcements coming down the pipe, I am sure. And the commissioner of the Canadian Football League, Randy Ambrosi, joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Mr. Commissioner, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Nick. It's nice to be on the show, and great lead-in music, by the way. Oh, phenomenal, phenomenal announcement. Now, before we get to that, I do want to ask you about legendary Rough Riders running back George Reed. He passed away yesterday. Today would have been his 84th birthday. You talk about one of the greats of this game. George was it. Well, it's almost impossible to, uh, to fully describe just how much George meant to us. What an incredible career. You know, you think uh, he's, you know, he started in 1963, played through 75, only missed five regular season games in that entire stretch. I mean, it's, it's unheard of to hit for, a, especially in that position, you know, to have that kind of longevity and, and resilience. But for me, it's not the George Reed on the field is as impressive as all that is. Um, it's the man, uh, just what George meant to the CFL, the kind of person he was, what he meant to the community in Saskatchewan, all that he did in that community. He will forever, he's left an indelible imprint on, on the, all of us that had a chance to know him. He's certainly left an indelible imprint on Canada, and uh, he'll be missed. Absolutely. What, what a legacy is left behind. Still ha- holds the uh, career-rushing touchdown record in the CFL, which is amazing, 134, which may never be beaten. Who knows? Uh, on to the Green Day halftime show. Um, you know, multiple Grammy Award winners, uh, a, a band that's already in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Talk to us about Green Day and how excited you are as a league to get these guys to play the halftime show. Well, it's certainly um, it's certainly exciting, and the the response that you described your 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 informal poll, we're getting the same response. Uh, you know, overwhelmingly, people are excited about them playing the show. They're excited to be coming to to Hamilton to play the Grey Cup, and I don't know if you saw their their little quote. It was certainly certainly aggressive, but I, I expect they're going to come filled with energy, looking to uh, looking to entertain not just the fans at Tim Hortons Field, but uh, people all over Canada and around the world that'll be tuned in for the game. So, you know, it, it was a bit exciting, a bit of news, um, not just a bit, I should say a big piece of news. Really the credit goes to the Hamilton Tiger Cats, to their, you know, to their great cup committee, to, to Scott and to Matt and to Bob, you know, they've been thinking big. This is part of a concert series. As you know, it's not just having, uh, it's not just having, a great great cup halftime which this will be but they're having you know three concerts the first one on the olg stage in niagara falls uh, the second uh, a pretty successful a pretty successful uh, entertainer in a row right carrie underwood on friday night uh, they've got another concert planned for saturday and then of course you know the um, the great cup the twisted tea great cup halftime show with Green Day. So, you know, full marks to the Ticats and, and, and to the league's 
Great Cup team for what they're putting together. It's going to be a real exciting Great Cup. We've seen the Taylor Swift-Travis Kelsey romance has done for the popularity of the NFL, bringing in you know really a new demographic. Do you have thoughts on that as a former football player, as a commissioner of the CFL? Would you like to see something similar in the CFL? Well, I suppose what we're seeing, I'm, I'm laughing because it, it, I'm just trying to think of how we, how we create that kind of effect. Uh, certainly, uh, Taylor Swift is in a category of her own, as I understand this uh, tour she's on right now will, will generate $1 billion or more in revenue. So she's certainly, um, she's kind of a one of a kind. But you know what, what, what it teaches us is that the personal stories matter. And it's how we ultimately connect with our fans. You know, Rick, uh, uh, two things that we think about all the time is, is uh, it's what does our game mean? And, and we're you know, talking more and more that our game is fun, fast and entertaining. That's really our brand. But it's, it's what we do in the community and that connection to the community that is the second piece and just as important. And you, you know how much the Ticats have meant to Hamilton how much the CFL has meant to Canadians, but it's those personal stories that, that connect us to, to our great players. And I I'm certainly supporting doing more and more, you know, helping our players tell those personal stories, because while it may not be Taylor Swift, they can be no less, um, no less impactful when we, uh, we tell those stories. So yeah, it, you know, certainly good for the game of football, uh, you know, that big level of, of enthusiasm, but uh, I think we've got a lot of great stories of our own. Well, we have uh, maybe a little bit of breaking news, and this could help the CFL. Got a text from CHML listener Robin who says, yes to Green Day, and then adds, I will date Billy Joe Armstrong, who's with Green Day, for the good of the CFL. So, you know, Robin is extending an opportunity for the league. See, Robin is what we would describe as a giver. <laughs> she's, she's putting herself... She's putting herself out there, Robin. Good on you, girl, and uh, and that's absolutely fantastic. We'll throw it out there and see uh, see if we can make that stick. But look, it's exciting, and you see, that's exactly the kind of response uh, that we want to see. You know, the fans having fun. That's the fun, fast, and entertaining. It's not just about the field and what goes on with our players. And by the way, great victory for the Tie Cats on Saturday night. And. Mm-hmm lock themselves into the playoffs but it's about being fun fast and entertaining in all elements of our of our ecosystem and robin just nailed it robin that's it fun fast and entertaining you just landed it commissioner we'll have to have you back on uh closer to the gray cup enjoy the rest of the regular season and, and certainly the playoffs as well thanks for the time today rick thanks very much nice to talk to you again you got it randy ambrosi is the commissioner of the cfl you're listening to the good morning hamilton podcast from 900 chml I want to remind you of our poll question of the day as well at am 900 chml on x some hospitals bringing back masking do you plan to wear a mask this fall or winter? Yes, no, or uh, leave me alone. I've been wearing it already. Actually, it's just I have been. 0% saying I have been. 62.5% say no. 375 say yes. You can also send me a text on masking, 905-645-3221. Lisa texting in. Hi, Rick. We are going back to masking today. PSW Community Outreach Program. Lisa, good luck. Thanks for the note. You can send me a text as well, 905-645-3221 or on email, rick at 900chml.com. Why are we talking about masking? Why is our poll question about masking? Have we not already had enough 
about masking? Well, about a week ago, St. Joe's Healthcare Hamilton announced that it was reinstating its masking requirements. Now, this is for staff and for volunteers, not for the general public. You're not going to be forced to put on a mask, although you will be encouraged to wear one in a local hospital. This applies to patient rooms, uh, registration areas, ambulatory clinics, and other areas with patient-facing activity. Hamilton Health Sciences is doing the same, although, again, it's not a requirement to patients and visitors. But with a triple threat of COVID and RSV and flu this fall and winter, should masking make a comeback? Dr. Timothy Sly is an epidemiologist and professor emeritus in the School of Population and Public Health at Toronto Metropolitan University and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Dr. Sly, good morning. How are you? A very good morning to you, Rick. So we're hearing that masking in hospitals, at least for staff and volunteers, is a must. Should it be for patients and visitors as well? I think you said it right at the top, Rick. I think it's we're not going to see a mandate at the moment in the way things are looking, but it's the kind of thing that a strong encouragement is going to be heard and seen and felt, and it's the kind of thing that you and I would want to do anyway. I don't wear a mask anywhere near as, as frequently as I did when the, the, the awful days of 2020 came out. We're not going to see those those days again, especially it, it, certainly if, unless another, another horrible variant appears, and that doesn't look likely, but it's possible. I, I wear a mask even on the subway, for example. I'm going downtown or to a very big uh, conference or meeting. Otherwise, I, I just stay a little distant, and I'm, I'm fine. Should this also apply to, and it might already be, uh, applied to long-term care facilities as well? We got a text from Lisa, our listener, who's uh, a PSW, and it sounds like they're implementing their masking campaign. I'm, I'm assuming long-term care facilities are in this boat as well? Oh, I think you're going to see that uh, going through all of healthcare, long-term care, personal services, uh, my ophthalmologist outfit here in Etobicoke, uh, same kind of thing. Yes, th- th- those things where, of course, you're, you're seeing on the one end, more vulnerable people, the public, and on the other end, uh, an ability to to transmit the virus to people because you're working closely with them. Now, the next question should be something like, well, are we going to see it with with hairdressers and uh, and uh, close contacts, people like that? And I think that that may appear, but certainly uh, we prefer to stay away from mandates and prefer to go on the side of strongly encouraged people to do the right thing. Masking is such a polarizing issue. There's some scar tissue with it. No different than getting a COVID-19 vaccine. There was a there was a lot of people who got it and there was a lot of people who didn't and, and we'll never get one. Is there any evidence that points to masking working, doing its job? Oh, my goodness. Yes. From the very beginning, it was. I mean, this is this is why long before COVID ever appeared over our horizon and darkened our doorsteps. I'm mixing my metaphors this time of the morning. Uh, you you would have seen not a single surgical operation take place uh, or intensive uh, procedure take place in a hospital without people fully being masked. We knew we know that masks work. Uh, there's no question about that. So the question is, can we can we encourage people to get over the stigma? And I think that's what you're implying. That we we in the West really never had this this uh, this uh, familiarity with seeing masks in the street or in the stores or even in the liquor store necessarily. In the East, I lived in Taiwan for a while, and I've been to Hong Kong 20, 30 times. There we would see people, young people, on the street, in the subway, 
wearing masks because it there was no stigma attached to it. You wore it because maybe you'd want to keep the dust down or mm. you had a cold, you didn't want to infect other people. So if we can get over that stigma, people are more comfortable with just putting it on. And I think we're almost there now, quite, quite frankly. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Dr. Timothy Sly, epidemiologist and professor emeritus in the School of Population and Public Health at Toronto Metropolitan University. We're talking about masking. It's the focus of our poll question of the day as well. We, we do know that pandemic fatigue is real and it's still with us. Um, and, and we're seeing some of the numbers, whether it's COVID or RSV, flu season is on the way. Sh- should we start masking up now or is there a... Is there a, a drop-dead date where we can put it off if we want to? Well, the risk assessments right now are showing that the risks of serious illness for young people is, is very, very low. But, of course, the risks for elderly people and those with underlying conditions, I don't need to go through that long list again, uh, is still remaining high. If you get it, there's still a chance it's going to be more severe illness. Notice that we hadn't seen in the last year or so, a year and almost a year and a half now, we hadn't seen that that uh, awful scenario where people were on respirators. We didn't have enough respirators in the hospitals. You remember that? And people were trying to build them themselves. Mm-hmm. And it was an awful situation, proning patients, turning them over every so often. No, no, we won't see that, but we will see that people in the elderly age groups are suffering more, and sometimes the hospital rates are going up, and that's one of our two indicators at the moment. The hospital rates are increasing with this disease, and have been since the early days of August this year. It's gone an upturn. And secondly, we're seeing the uh, wastewater treatment. It's in our sewage, it's in our poop uh, and the, those tests being done is showing another surge. We're approximately equal to where we were about a year ago in the wastewater signal, and that's heading upwards as well. So it's it's breathing down our neck at the moment. So why don't we take the most simplest and most practical solution to this? Wear a mask. Uh, if you're ill, don't go back to school, back to work until you're you're well again. Those kinds of things are going to work very well. And, of course, keep update with the vaccines. The vaccines coming out and they're starting to come out now uh, are well aligned to the, to, the, to the family of viruses we're facing now. Those original alphas and betas and deltas have all disappeared. So our protection against those is, is waned. But the Omicron is where we need to be looking at now, and that's where the vaccines are. Already seen commercials for, you know, get your COVID and your flu shot. You can get it at the same time. It's safe to do so. Do you expect uptake of the latest COVID booster or new kind of mix, new concoction? Do you, do you expect the uptake to be above or below 50% of the population? I, I would assume much less. Well, the figures you were, you were reading off there at the moment are, are a little bit worrying because we haven't seen the, the big rush, the enthusiasm to get the vaccine. But I think that's increasing. And I think when people begin to realize that, Look, it's it's safe, it's proven, it's not a new vaccine, it's just a tweaked version of the vaccine that's been with us for a while now, tweaked to align itself with the latest variants. So why wouldn't we do that? I think as numbers are going to begin to go up, people have been looking at that evidence. It's an evidence-based thing, and people such as you, broadcasters, are looking at the current evidence, not wild, fanciful stories in either direction, but what's the figure, what are the figures showing? And I think as people go back indoors and have their happy hours indoors now, we're going to see those that's that wave appearing. The wave's been with us. We just hope it's more of a speed bump than a major wave. But 
let's let's stay protected in, in any case. And those last two var- uh, variants, the EG.5 and the PA2.86, those uh, have mutated enough that they're distanced themselves from the previous vaccine, the previous uh, variant groups. And uh, that means distancing themselves from the previous vaccines too. So we just need to update those. And as, you, as you're right, we can take the vaccine. And I think in future years, we may see the single shot but at the moment, it's going to be two separate shots. Have them at the same time. It's one trip, over and done with in one trip. And uh, uh, they prefer to have them in different arms, but uh, have at the same time, sure. Great insight, as always, from Dr. Timothy Sly. Dr. Sly, thank you for your time this morning. Always my pleasure, Rick. Stay safe. Dr. Sly is an epidemiologist and professor emeritus in the School of Population and Public Health at Toronto Metropolitan University. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Do you still get flyers? Do you go to the mailbox? Do you still get those paper flyers? I've seen a decrease in those flyers. And I'm, I'm sure you've noticed it as well because, well, for instance, Metroland Media Group announced... Recently, it would no longer print 71 community newspapers, and they came with a boatload of flyers. And some are worried that the decline in flyer advertising is going to impact a lot of people quite negatively. Bruce Winder is a retail analyst and author of Retail Before, During, and After COVID-19, and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Bruce, good morning. How are you? Hey, Rick. How are you doing? I'm good. What has happened to the flyer business? Well, you know what? It's been uh, sort of on a on a journey of decline over the last, call it, 30 years. And that's mostly due to the fact that the Internet has grown and um, mobile technology and mobile flyers have grown. And you just have different demographics, right? You know, if you're a youngster right now, um, you know, uh, Gen Z or millennial, you're, you're not really into the flyer. You're not really using that. But folks who are maybe, you know, seniors or boomers um, or even some Gen Xers, you know, it, it's a big part of their shopping behavior to use it. Is this the end of the paper flyer? And if not now, how much more does it have? Yeah, it's not it's not dead yet. It's going to be around, I think, for another at least decade, maybe, you know, maybe another decade after that. But but eventually it will go away um, just from a demographical standpoint, you know, as we cycle through the demographics and, you know, elders and boomers don't spend anymore, then that's going to be something that's uh, going to be eliminated, I think, because it has a fairly large cost, right? It's a very costly marketing tool and it's not great on the environment either. Is it an effective marketing tool? It can be. It can be incredibly effective. It was incredibly effective. It is incredibly effective with a certain demographic. So there are certain people out there who get their flyers every week. They lay them on the table and they use those to plan out their purchases, right? So for those people, the flyer is everything um, on a very targeted basis. But again, it is expensive and the return on investment or ROI is not as great as, say, you know, maybe some digital digital marketing because digital is just so much cheaper, although it's getting more expensive now. In saying that, is the digital flyer as effective in, in getting customers in the door? I think for for those demographics it is. You know, if you're targeting Generation Z, um, you know, millennials, and, and I'm not trying to sort of uh, generalize here. You know, there's lots of boomers who use the digital flyer too. But for the people who use it, yeah, it can be really, really effective. Um, but uh, it's just, you know, nothing beats that old flyer because it's in your face, it's on the table. It's tangible. It makes it really easy to get out there and spend. 
We're with uh, Bruce Winder, retail analyst and author of Retail Before, During, and After COVID-19. We're talking about paper flyers. Now we're seeing fewer and fewer of them in our mailboxes. This would also mean, I would assume, fewer delivery jobs. You know, if Metroland Media Group is not sending out their newspapers anymore, at least the printed edition, and all those flyers, we're going to see fewer people actually delivering this material. Yeah, that's sort of one of the byproducts of the change-up, you know, in terms of medium is uh, you're just going to see less people. And it's, it's, it's similar to the, you know, the newspaper industry overall, right? You know, in terms of if you go back 30 years ago, everyone got a newspaper. Now newspapers are few and far between. So the people who deliver those, you know, are, are out of a job or having to sort of reinvent themselves. And you talk about advertisements, or at least paper flyers. You look at those community newspapers, and that's where a lot of the mom-and-pop businesses would advertise. So they're, they're greatly impacted by this. Yeah, it's a great point, Rick, because a lot of the mom and pops, you know, they, they may still use those tools because they're very effective for their clientele. And it's difficult for them to change. So now they're caught between a rock and a hard place, right? They've lost that distribution network and uh, they're struggling. They're going to have to reinvent themselves or hire someone to go out and, and distribute flyers. You know, it's a real challenge for some of those folks. You mentioned the demographic that's going to you know, be hit the hardest by this being, you know, the boomers, the Gen X. I certainly use flyers on a weekly basis, those printed versions. And yes, I have the app as well. It's just, you know, that, that feel, that, that look of it, you can post it on the fridge as a, you know, a visual reminder to say, oh, yeah, eggs are on sale this week or whatever the case is. Another piece of the community would be the marginalized community, those who don't have cell phones and don't have these digital flyers. They're going to really feel it, I would assume. Yeah, that's the other part, right, is people who either aren't into uh, technology or they can't afford technology, they can't afford the Internet or a phone, you know, and, and these people uh, are going to be lost a little bit now, right, because they're going to miss that. So that, that's why, you know, I think flyers will continue to exist, um, it, but just in a, in a different form or lower in lower numbers. But it, the Metroland thing has really thrown a wrench in this, too, so I'm not sure how that's going to play out and, could be unfortunate for some marginalized people. You also mentioned the waste component of it. Less flyers would obviously mean less waste, uh, and that would be, I guess, impacting the bottom line of these businesses as well. They don't have to, you know, have to pay f- to, to print these things. Yeah, flyers are incredibly expensive to create and to print, and uh, it has a fairly large, you know, impact on the environment, right, in terms of disposal. So, I mean, that's the upside. Those are some of the winners in this is is companies who specifically, you know, don't target people who um, who use them or people who um, or have used them. But there is a big risk on the marketing side. Right. You save money on the flyer production, but you also may lose sales and margins based on not being able to reach all of your target customers. So it's a bit of a double-edged sword. One of the big bonuses of having a digital flyer is you can also incorporate loyalty points within that flyer. How big of an attraction has that been? Yeah, that's really big. I mean, what I've noticed is there's more discussion on loyalty right now um, because uh, of the economy and things are changing. And uh, more companies, you know, you look at uh, Home Hardware has recently jumped on Scene Plus. And Dollarama is trying out Air Miles. So there's more loyalty now. And if you can incorporate that digitally, it sort of makes things easier for retailers and consumers and uh, easier to convert. So that, that's an upside of, of the digital flyer, I think. Bruce Winder, retail analyst, author of Retail Before, During, and After COVID-19. Thank you for the time today, and we'll uh, touch base down the road. 
Thanks a lot, Rick. Have a great day. You too. Thanks again to Bruce Winder for joining us here on GMH. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, as we know, the transition to electric vehicles is on the way. More and more industries want to reduce their carbon emissions, many of them being told to do so. So it should come as no surprise that the Ontario government is preparing to fill that need for more electricity, for more energy, and it plans to do so by ramping up nuclear capabilities. In fact, very recently, Energy Minister Todd Smith said nuclear production must expand, must ramp up, uh, in order to increase our electricity production. Uh, We even heard earlier this year from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said we have to do, quote, much more nuclear. The questions are, how much more? How do we get there? And at what cost? And is there another way of doing this? Mark Winfield is the co-chair of the Sustainable Energy Initiative at York University and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Mark, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Maybe we'll start with the most important one. How much is this going to cost? How much is expanding nuclear power going to cost us? Well, the, the, the short answer is we actually don't know, um, but the costs are expected to be very, very high. Uh, the overall estimate on the um, province's current plan um, is in the range of $400 billion over the next 20 years, uh, with nuclear being the largest component of that by far. That's a lot of money. Can we afford it? I think that's a very good question. I mean, it is an extraordinary uh, level of expenditure, and one will have to think partially because we don't we don't have any firm figures at all in terms of uh, what the actual costs on the nuclear side would be. Um, I think it's a very legitimate question in terms of the impact on electricity rates. And, and begs questions, is, is there a better way to decarbonize the, the energy and electricity systems <clears throat> Excuse me, in Ontario? We have Bruce Power in Kingarden. Kingarden, I believe that's the largest nuclear generating station still in the world. We have Pickering, we have Darlington, we even have a nuclear plant in McMaster, although it doesn't really contribute to our electricity needs. How much more energy will we need from these nuclear facilities if the governments kind of get their way? And well, you know, sorry. I was going to say, and are we going to need more plants to be built? Um, at the moment, the what the government has put on the table would be uh, one of the largest, if not the largest, nuclear expansion programs in the world. Um, they are talking about building, uh, essentially doubling. Uh, the Bruce facility, which would be based on past experience, we're talking 50 to 60 billion there at least. Uh, they want to build new reactors at Darlington, and now they're also talking about uh, trying to refurbish the Pickering B plant. Um, so this would be a fairly enormous undertaking. You're looking not quite doubling the existing fleet. It depends on certain assumptions about how long the existing reactors last as well. But either way, it would be a, a massive expansion and, and uh, as I say, probably the largest nuclear expansion in what you might call the, the, the global north uh, going on in the world, certainly in North America and Europe. 
Mark Winfield is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Mark is the co-chair of the Sustainable Energy Initiative at York University, and we're talking about nuclear energy and how the provincial government wants to greatly increase that capacity so we fill the bucket of our electrical or uh, electricity needs. Uh, in terms of infrastructure, do we have enough, and do we have enough skilled workers to, to handle this increase? Well, these are these are all reasonable questions to which at this stage nobody has any answers. Um, there's the question of cost. There's questions of capacity to build on this scale. And there are also a great deal of uncertainty about um, how the process of decarbonization and what will happen in terms of energy demand will actually look like. There's very, very high levels of uncertainty about how this would actually play out over the next 20 years, which, which then introduces a large amount of risk because uh, nuclear plants have notoriously long construction and planning timelines. And so you're making guesses now about what the future will look like in a context of very, very high levels of uncertainty. So if we were to build a nuclear plant now, how long would it take to get online? Are we, are we talking like two decades? The historical pattern is, is in the range of two decades. Wow. And there is also a long history, not just in Ontario, but in Europe and the United States, of very, very significant delays and cost overruns on nuclear construction projects. Is this the right move? I mean, you're the expert. What, what else should Ontario be considering? Well, Ontario has a wide range of possibilities in front of it um, that do not seem to be being considered very carefully by the province. It seems on a very, very specific pathway around <coughs> excuse me, expansion of the nuclear fleet and also a very dramatic expansion of the role of natural gas fire generation. Um, the province has a very large potential to improve its performance around energy efficiency. Uh, there have been some very interesting studies now being done on what are called distributed resources. This is tying together everything from rooftop solar to fleets of parked electric vehicles um, into reliable resources. There are questions of how far can you expand renewables and energy storage. There's questions of the relationship with other provinces as well and how we might optimize that. And there's, there's been quite a lot of work done on this in terms of what different pathways for the province might look like towards decarbonization. Uh, but so far, the province seems on this, 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 this sort of uh, one-track or really two-track focus on nuclear expansion and expansion of the role of natural gas, which are likely to be the two highest impact, highest risk, and highest cost options for the province going forward. Interesting stuff. Mark, we'll leave it there. Thank you for your time and your expertise this morning. Great. Thank you very much. Mark Winfield is the co-chair of the Sustainable Energy Initiative at York University. As we chew on our need for much more electricity in the future, and the, the provincial government seems to think that we're going to need a lot more nuclear energy to get to where we need to go when it comes to our electrical needs. In short, we know that our vehicles are going to be electrified. A lot of businesses are being told, hey, listen, we've got to be carbon neutral. 
Got to get on the electric train. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.